So we've been talking for a number of weeks about joy, <coughs> about opening to joy. And um, this is the last time we're going to talk about that for a while. <laughs> I'm sure we'll come back to it at some point. But I wanted to talk about tonight was about passion and about equanimity and their connection to joy. Passion, chukha, equanimity, hishtavut. 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 In some sense, even before we start talking about the particulars, if you feel out, if you sort of just try to touch what joy feels like, real joy, real openness, real joy, both those qualities are automatically present in it. There's a passion in joy. There's a kind of deep caring, a commitment to the world, a commitment to something. And there's an openness in which sort of everything can arise, in which everything can in some ways be okay. There's an openness to whatever manifests. <clears throat> and sometimes Sometimes, especially in this practice, because we talk so much about, about that openness and about equanimity and about being <coughs> present to whatever arises, which is so important, we sometimes forget the part of passion. And yet passion is so important. It's so important. In Rishi Chochmah, says that we have to have this overwhelming yearning for Hashem, for God. We're supposed to be trapped in this just yearning for God, this passion to reach the divine. Of course, we see it all the time in Tanakh. We say, right, Right, like a, like a deer who yearns um, for water, right? So too we yearn for the living God. And that passion itself, just that passion, that deep yearning, itself can be the path of awakening, of totally opening, of being totally present to what's happening, of being in love with the world, in love with God, in love with ourselves. There's a beautiful story about the Baal Shem Tov, who was, uh, got a message from heaven that uh, Yaakov Frank, Jacob Frank of the Frankists, was planning some trouble, and he had to do something to defeat Jacob Frank. And he was told that there were two other figures he needed to defeat Jacob Frank. One other figure was a famous rabbi who he went and met, and another guy called Moshe Pastich. No idea where Moshe Pastich was or who he was, but he was told that he lived near a certain town. So the Vesh went with his other rabbi to search out Moshe Pastich. And they said, oh, Moshe Pastich, he's a shepherd. He'll be outside of town over there in the fields. You go find him there. And uh, so the Vesh walks out and he finds this guy. And what he sees is Moshe, who's jumping back and forth over a hole in the ground, <coughs> screaming out to God, I'm jumping over this hole in the ground for you, Hashem. <laughs> and the sheep are like scattered all over the hillside, <laughs> all over the place. You know, he's not doing a great job as a shepherd. But his great, great, great passion for God. Great passion for God. And the Baal Shem Tov sort of goes over to him 
And Moshe doesn't read, doesn't write, doesn't know anything about Judaism, <laughs> doesn't do any of the rituals. But the Baal Shem Tov said, I could tell just in meeting him that he was in an even higher level than I. This beautiful image of just total passion. Doesn't matter what it is, sort of the most meaningless act, jumping back and forth over a hole, but there's complete commitment in that moment, complete commitment, complete love for that action. Anais Nin, a writer, said, what everyone forgets is that passion is not merely a heightened sensual fusion, but a way of life which produces, as in the mystics, an ecstatic awareness of the whole of life. It's a way of life. It's a way of approaching a life with a full heart, with a full heart, with our full commitment, which readiness to give our entire selves at every moment, with misirut nefesh, just the willingness to give our souls. What if you're ready, just in this breath, in this moment, to totally give ourselves, to give ourselves completely with passion and commitment and desire and excitement to whatever was about to happen? There's a story from Rav Yitzchak of Ak de Minako, Isaac of Akko which is told in Rishi Chochmah. And he tells the story of a sort of uh, no-good Nick who was hanging around in a town. And one day he saw this beautiful princess come out of the bathhouse. And he said, oh, would that I could, you know, fell in love with her, would that I could be with her. And she heard as she passed by, and she said to him, That'll only happen in the graveyard, not here. By which he meant, you know, drop dead, <laughs> right? But this guy wasn't the brightest guy in the world. <laughs> and he thought, fantastic, we're going to meet at the graveyard. <laughs> so he headed off to the graveyard to wait there for this princess. And he was so passionately focused on the arrival of the princess. All he did, all day, and she didn't arrive the first day, he's like, oh, for sure she'll, she'll come tomorrow. And then I said, oh, for sure she'll come the next day. And just total passion, the story says, was totally focused on that image, that hope, that desire of the princess coming. And he slept there, and he ate and drank there, and he just stayed in the, the graveyard, hoping at any moment that she might appear. And then, and I'll quote you from the text here, translation of it, he did this for many days. And because of the exclusive attachment of his soul to one object and his hitbodadut and his total longing, his thought was unified with God. Until it became, as he says in the story, a great tzaddik who all the horsemen and foot soldiers and passers-by would come to to receive blessings and hear his teachings. And Rabbi Isaac of Akko, who wrote about this account, then followed up by said, anyone 
who does not desire a woman is like a donkey, or even less than one. The point being that from the objects of sensation, one may apprehend the worship of God. There's this sense of this beautiful, overwhelming power of passion. Even this passion of this, not the brightest guy, right? <laughs> didn't realize that the princess was not actually arranging to meet him at the graveyard. But a total one-pointedness, a total commitment to that hope, to that one passion, to that one desire. And there's a way in which we all experience that. You know, it's like Yitzhak Demin Akko said, if you've never experienced desire, right? Never experienced real passion, real love. It's like being less than an animal. You know? It's a central part of what we do to have that love, to have that total commitment, total commitment. It's a question really of giving ourselves fully. And it's why passion is scary. I think oftentimes we hold back from passion because there's something threatening about it. If we really admit to ourselves how much we care about this thing, how much we want something, how important something actually is to us, it's tremendously vulnerable. What about the great fear that it won't happen? And what about when it doesn't happen? Because that's inevitably what happens sometimes. Even when we're totally passionate, right? It doesn't work out. It doesn't happen. The situation doesn't turn out the way you want it to. And so there's this tremendous bravery. There's this courage which passion demands of us, which is the courage, first of all, of truth, the courage to admit actually the passion which is already there inside of you, despite the fear and the resistance. And second of all, it's the courage to actually allow that to totally manifest and come to conscious, despite the risks, right? despite the risks probably heard yourself or friends say, especially like, let's say you've ever had a relationship which hasn't worked out, and you return and say, you know, I don't want to fall in love with anybody again. I don't want to have that passion. I don't want to have that commitment again because it was too painful. It was too scary. It was too hurtful in some way. And it makes sense because, you know, we get burned and we're scared of being burned again. But we sacrifice being alive when we do that. We sacrifice the actual very stuff of life the passion, the fire, the youth, the very life force which flows within us. Passion is about genuinely acknowledging how important and how cherished something is to you. You know, how much do you really cherish that thing? And it's this willingness to really acknowledge that cherishing deeply. Just there's the thing that I was writing about, I was thinking about actually today, um, it's for this practice, how much I cherish it, and how much I am deeply grateful for the opportunity that I had to learn this and learn to manifest in my life. And when I can touch that, the deep passion that comes with that to put my entire effort, my entire being into the next moment, into the next breath, into the possibility of awakening right now, of just waking up in love and in openness and in compassion. So 
beautiful poem I found on the internet. I don't even remember where I found it or how. Somebody I've never heard of called K.J. Swanson. She writes, May you read dangerously, listen passionately, and write with risk. No matter whom you are running from, where you are hiding, or who is telling you to beware. And when you find yourself face to face with a story that awakens your heart or breaks your heart, unleashes your hope of adventure, or reminds you why you started seeking in the first place, then dive in, steal it if you have to, and wrestle it for a blessing. May you be brave, may you be kind, may you be haunted by the wonder of God's kingdom. Amen. Passion is about living dangerously. There's nothing safe about passion. It's very unsafe passion. But it's the willingness, you know, like Yaakov, who she's clearly talking about here, to dive in and steal it if you have to, to wrestle it for a blessing, to not be willing to let go. And to therefore be haunted by wonder. Uh, being haunted by wonder. It actually just comes with passion. When we open to that moment of total commitment, the wonder automatically arises. Just behind us, haunted, always sort of, sort of waiting in the wings, ready to emerge, as soon as our, that general moment, that, that just that one moment of connection happens, that moment of true love, that moment of dialing in, diving in, a moment of stealing the blessing. And it doesn't matter who you're running from. It doesn't mean that there's no fear. We don't get to passion because there's no fear. The passion comes from sometimes just spontaneously, just arises, you can't help it. Sometimes it arises and immediately the fear arises to try and block it or cut it down because the passion's a bit scary. And the passion comes then when we have the courage to just embrace the fear and embrace the passion anyway. We don't need to get rid of the fear to have passion. Fear doesn't need to go anywhere. It just needs to be held in those very wide, thick, strong arms of passion and compassion. And to do that, we have to be ready to wrestle, right? That's what we are, Yisrael, God wrestlers. With joy and passion and adventure. You know, I have these very sweet memories as a kid of wrestling my eldest sister and my dad. <laughs> and uh, the pure joy and exuberance of it, right? Just the pure joy. And of course, I couldn't win, right? <laughs> I was like six, they were a lot bigger than I am. But of course, the passion was just in the struggle and the effort and the enwrapping of bodies and the love and the total commitment as a little kid, sort of the belief each time that I was gonna pin them and maybe they'd let me pin them this time, right? <laughs> It 
it's a struggle which is uh, a leap into the ring. Right? There's sort of two ways we can struggle. We can struggle with a kind of bitter, tense resistance. Right? We're sort of desperately struggling and trying to hold it together. And we can struggle with an openness and a passion and a bravery, which is sort of a dancing over the abyss. Right? We know it's there. We know the hole's there. We know we can't hold the world together. The world's falling apart all the time. No matter how much we wrestle and struggle, we're not going to hold the world together. But we can leap over the chasm. We can leap, we can dance, we can spin, we can wrestle, we can fall, and we can reemerge. And it's all okay. It's all okay in that passion of engagement with life. And yet on the other hand, we want to achieve equanimity. Equanimity, equalness, the feeling of being unperturbed, unshaken in a certain way by the movements of life, the willingness to accept and open to everything that arises, even when we're passionately opposed to it in some way. That too is a place of joy. You know, it's a place of balance and stability where joy emerges because we're actually not pulled after anything and we're not running away from anything. And you might notice, if you just notice a moment of it, sometimes it happens in the practice, right? There's a moment in the practice where you're just with the breath and you're not, you're not trying to do anything else, you're not running away from anything, you're just there and there's joy there. There's actually joy just in that moment. Joy actually just arises as a natural condition of letting go of the push and pull. And yet it's not really opposed to passion. It's actually, I think, something I'm still sort of figuring out and working with, it's a kind of quality of right passion. Right passion actually has that openness of equanimity. There's a great story that Rambam tells, Maimonides, of a, a spiritual seeker, Chassid, who is trying to reach perfection. And he's trying to reach Hishtavut, he's trying to reach equanimity. And he um, goes on a journey on a ship. And he's poor, and so he's on the lower decks, and the rich folks are on the upper decks. And he's standing there, and uh, one of the guys on the upper decks unbuttons his fly and urinates on him. Right? <laughs> urinates on the guy below. And the guy below is like, what? <laughs> and then he notices, and he says, and... I wasn't angered. Didn't really matter. And I rejoiced a great rejoicing in that moment. Says Simchagdola in that moment. That's a crazy story. But I actually think it's a beautiful, beautiful story. So what's the story about? The story is about, to be clear, he's not rejoicing that he got urinated on, right? But he's rejoicing that he's recognizing this guy just tried to disgrace him, whatever, shame him, etc. And he recognized that it's totally irrelevant. Who is this guy? Why could I care in the least about this act? Like what happened is some sort of gross, watery stuff fell on me. That's not so pleasant. And I could get involved in a whole story about anger, shame, hatred, self-abuse, revenge. I could get caught in that whole story. 
or I could totally free myself from it. And in that freedom is total joy. Total joy. Now it doesn't mean, right, the story doesn't it doesn't mean you couldn't say like, and don't do that again, <laughs> or I'm going to do whatever I can to stop people from acting that way, right? It's not the same thing. Equanimity is not passivity. It's not stopping bad things from happening. But it's recognizing that you don't have to take them personally. Right? It's not actually about you. You can add, he could have gotten peed on and then gotten angry and revenge-filled and full of hatred and full of shame. And so he could have added a lot of pain and suffering to the already unpleasant experience of getting urinated on. Right? Or he could do the opposite. And not only do that, but have the joy of recognizing his achievement equanimity, right? There's joy just in that moment of seeing it. And the Bizetzner um, talks about this same quality a little bit in Derech HaMelech. And he says something very interesting. He says, and this is a, an older Kabbalistic theme, that the task of every Jew is to seek out and raise the sparks in the world, the nitzotzot in the world, which fell from their soul in the shattering of the primordial Adam, Adam Kadmon. It's a sort of primordial being, of which we were all a part, shattered in the Shriyat HaKeli, we won't get into the whole story. And anyway, parts of ourselves are scattered throughout the world, and we need to go out and redeem them, sort of pull ourselves back together. And... To do that, actually, you need to sort of travel around and find the different parts of yourself in the different parts of the world. And this is one classic, actually, explanation, Kabbalistic explanation of the exile. Actually, sent into the exile in order to collect these sparks in the different parts of the world and to bring them together. But he says, because Adam Karmon was made from the dust from the four corners of the earth, as the Midrash tells us, then actually, if we're really present we can find the parts of ourselves from the whole world wherever we find ourselves. Any place we find ourselves actually includes the whole world within it. And we can find that whole world. Every estranged part of ourselves, every part of ourselves which is lost to us in some way, we can find in this moment, in this place. So no matter what it is that you think, I've lost this part of myself you know, some quality in yourself that seems lost, some memory that seems lost, some experience that seems lost, whatever it is, it's actually available to you right now. But then he says, if you have a ta'ava, a desire for something, I'm going to use two different terms here, ta'ava, then because you're actually lost in that particular object, right, you're lost in desire, then you can't include the whole world in yourself. You're not open enough to find all those estranged, all those lost parts of yourself because you're actually caught in that object. Right? And you can just sort of check out the experience of desire. right? Sort of one part of desire. I'm going to bring it back to passion in a second. So we're talking about very particular. It's like right, the cake. Think about there's like some cake out there. There's one piece left and you want it before anybody else gets it. Right? or whatever it is for you. So just try to feel what that experience is. It's quite tight. It's quite narrowing. It's like, I want the cake, total laser focus, not very focused about the rest of the world. But he says, if you have ratzon for that thing, right? so will or something, or another kind of term for desire, he explains what he means by it. 
then you can connect to the whole world. Because Ratzon is actually the yearning of the soul to connect with the part of oneself that is in the other object or in the other human being. Right? It's my yearning to connect deeply with the part of me that is in you or the part of me that is in the tree or the mountain or the piece of cake or whatever it is that I'm connecting with. It's a, it's, it's an, it's a yearning for unity. It's a yearning for connection. And he says, when you have ratzon, actually, then, first of all, it's necessary. You need to have ratzon for objects and aspects of the world. That sort of passion. And in that ratzon, you connect to and find and bring out of exile those parts of yourself which you've lost. So the fundamental distinction here is between two kinds of kind of movements towards an object. We all have moods. We all have desire on some level. And desire is a beautiful thing in our lives. And the question is, is it a desire which narrows us and traps us in that object? Or is it a desire which opens us up? Another way of saying the same thing from the same language, which he says is, Ta'ava disconnects you from the rest of the world. Right? Ta'ava actually separates you from the rest of the world. Versus Ratzon, this kind of open passion, actually connects you to the rest of the world. And perhaps the key element of that you know, still trying to figure that out. You can each explore it in yourself. Like, what do those two different desires feel like? Is that ratzon is filled with love. Right? It's filled with love. You want to share this joy with the world. You want to connect. But tava is selfish and tight. Right? It's like that piece of cake. It's like you've tasted an amazing piece of cake... And your action could be, wow, this cake is so amazing. You guys got to have some, right? <laughs> That's like ratzon. It's like, that was so delicious. I just want to share it with the world. This is so amazing. You got to taste this stuff, right? Or it's like, oh, that was so good. I want to sneak another piece while nobody's looking and go eat it by myself. <laughs> Nobody takes my piece, right? <laughs> and we've all experienced both of those. Right? We've all experienced both of those. And maybe it isn't cake that does it for you. Maybe it's something else, whatever the thing is, right? But that sense of, it's like, I just experienced this amazing thing. I want to just give it to the world because, oh my God, you should just appreciate this wonder that I just had. Right? That's being haunted by awe. Right? And then there's the sense of, I just got this thing. I want to hold on to it and secrete it away and sort of take it by myself because I want to protect it from the world. I don't want to share it. There's something vulnerable and unsafe about giving it to the world for me. And so really, both equanimity and passion, they're both crucially important, and in the end, they're even the same. It's really a kind of open-hearted, unattached, passionate joy of involvement with life that we're going for, right? open-hearted, it's unattached, but it's passionate and it's joyful and it's connected to life. The point is not to run away from life and, I don't know, sit on some mountain somewhere and feel indifferent to the world, right? And we also don't just want to fall into all the craziness and confusion of life, but to be totally committed to our place and involvement in the world and our lives and the lives of others 
without losing ourselves in it. Right? It's a place of really total stability, but sort of the paradox is that the stability is the stability of a dance, right? It's not being stable. We're never stable. We never stop moving. If we try to get the stability of stopping moving, which is the stability actually of like cutting off our passion, like it's too much dangerous to want that, I'm just gonna stop it. It's not stable, it's dead, right? You only stop moving when you're dead. But the stability we want is actually a stability of recognizing there's no ground underneath us. It's constantly shifting. We're living on a river. It reminds me kind of like a frogger. I don't know if you ever played frogger, right? <laughs> you were kids. I know it's a long time ago, a game. But right, it's like the river's going by all the things and you're jumping from log to log and that's just the way life is. If you want to resist it, you think there's some time when you finally get to the other shore and it's like, fine, find the other shore. It doesn't happen. It never happens, right? So you can pretend it happens or you can leap. You can leap. And sometimes you'll fall in the river and you'll get wet. And that's fun too. And sometimes it'll be a little bit painful, but that's okay. There's beauty even being in the coldness of the river and there's beauty in emerging out of it and there's beauty in jumping back on the logs. And really the ultimate well, the ultimate lesson of this is that to achieve this joy, we don't need to do anything but be. We don't actually need to do anything. We're so committed, and we've been trained to do things all the time. If you want to achieve something, you have to do something to achieve it, to make it work out, to fix it, to figure out how it's going to be. But you actually don't need to do anything. Just stop for a moment, right? Just stop. So I don't remember who said it earlier, right? We're human beings, not human doings. <laughs> but we forget that a lot of the time. <laughs> One of my teachers, Amita, said that there are all these things we think will bring us joy. Success, praise, accolades, Whatever it is, you can think of the various things, whatever the list of things are in your mind that you think, if I finally get those things, they'll bring me joy, right? And she said, which I thought is so beautiful, she said, all those things are just decorations on being. And being doesn't need to be dressed up. <laughs> you know, it doesn't become anything more. Of course, it's okay. Our, our minds like to do that, right? We like to collect all the rewards and the trinkets and whatever it is. We want to do something more than and add another piece of jewelry. But we can also see the humor in it, you know, just how funny we are. This endless stream of creating and doing and adding and adding and adding and adding and adding. And we don't need to do anything. We don't need to do anything. And so sort of the challenge or the invitation is to just be happy right now. It kind of feels, you know, they say it's like, it feels kind of crazy. Like, really? It's like, you could just be happy right now. Right now. You don't have to do anything. 
You're going to fix anything. All the things that you think like you need to fix, you're like, well, I could be happy. First, I have to fix this problem I have or the anxiety I'm feeling or the sadness or getting the right job or if I could just stop having this fight with my friend. None of that, right? You could just decide right now. You can try it out. Try deciding right now for a moment. It's like, oh, I'm just going to be happy. Next breath. Okay. <laughs> Next breath. Okay. And you may lose that. That may go away. That's okay. But it's as close as your next breath. Right? It's as close as your next breath. You don't need all the striving. There are no mountains to climb. There are no rivers to cross. It's just there. It's already there. As they say in the Torah, it's there in your mouth. Ready for you. As close as your next breath. So as I'm normal now, uh, we're going to open it up to questions, thoughts, discussion, anything people want to say. never go back to the breath. That's fine. Have your whole practice being with that bodily sensation. Amazing practice. You can discover amazing things, have really deep insights, just being with that bodily sensation. We train with the breath because our minds are really scattered, right? As you might have noticed, it's kind of hard to concentrate, right? So we train with the breath to develop some of the concentration, but the goal is not to do with the breath. The breath is just an anchor. Just an anchor to use. And maybe it's a really important anchor that we want to train with for years and years and years and years. And that's great. But don't get lost in the mistake to think that the goal is to come back to the breath. So you have an experience. What are the experiences? You're having knee pain. You open to, you're with the knee pain. Fantastic. You could spend your whole practice being with a sensation knee. And maybe knee pain passes and something else arises. Great. So you notice that sensation, you're with that. No problem. But then maybe you notice... Actually, you're with the knee pain, and now you're lost in fantasy. So it's like, maybe I should come back to the breath to ground myself a little bit. And depending on the day, really, you can make different decisions about that. So for me, you know, there are days when I'm, I'm more distracted, so then I'm trying to have a little more discipline to bring myself back a little bit more. There are days when my mind is a little more settled, and it's a little more you know, clear and, and, and concentrated, and so I'm just sitting in open awareness. And just whatever comes up, comes up, comes up, comes up, comes up. I, and I don't really use my anchor at all. Either of those is totally fine. Um, did you have another question? Sure. Um, yeah, just, can you just talk a little bit more about that? Because I have heard that before, that rather than focus on the breath, you can sort of watch sort of your thoughts. But yeah. can you just talk about the difference between that and maybe getting lost in it? Yeah, sure. Um, so you can watch everything, right? all parts of your experience, thoughts, emotions, bodily sensations, which are basically the components of your experience, you can observe them all. 
The difference is, I'll talk about two sort of metaphors for it, which are pretty which are important. One is, it's like a river, right? And at first, especially at the beginning, you sort of want to be on the bridge above the river, right? So you're sort of watching the river as it flows past, rather than falling into the river, which is what we normally do. Right? Thought arises, we fall into it, 10 minutes later we realize we've been downriver and, you know, fallen off the stream somewhere, right? Exactly, got caught on a rock. So the goal is, it's like, oh, can I back up a little bit and get on the bridge and see and observe? But actually, and that's a great place to be and a great place to practice. We practice that place in a long time. But actually, what we ultimately do is we start, we observe, and then we actually want to get kind of closer and closer and closer and closer to the river until we kind of want to stick our head in the river without getting carried away by it. So we're going to be totally flush with our experience. We're not separated by experience at all, but we're also not trapped in our experience. We're still observing our experience. Right? It's like that sensation, your face is like, right? you're plunging in the river, you can see everything that's happening, but you haven't fallen in. Now thought is the trickiest place to do that with. Right? So I don't recommend starting with thought, but I'll just describe thought for a second. Mostly what will happen is if you bring your attention to thought, the thought will disappear. That's just the standard thing that will happen. You bring your attention to thought, thought disappears. That's great. There's no problem. Just come back to your anchor or whatever else you're paying attention to. What's Sorry? What's anchor? Anchor. Odin. But if you are very focused and quiet, you can actually see thought. You can watch. You can literally watch your mind like a movie screen. Like a movie screen. You can watch your mind have a thought. Like your mind will think, I should go up and get some lunch, <laughs> or whatever it thinks, and you'll see the thought arise. You can only see that you can actually see the impetus. You can see like, oh, sitting here, open space, discomfort in the heart, thoughts starting to arise to provide some kind of comfort, thought about some fantasy, right? You can see that whole process happening. But it's hard, and it takes a lot of practice, and it's particularly hard to do in daily practice. And usually when you're having deep experiences of seeing thought, it's when you're on retreat and you've really been able to settle. Um, however, much more concretely, you can see you know, body and emotion much more easily. Um, and that's why body is a great place to train with. Pain is a fantastic thing in the practice because it's very focusing. It's the great part, right? <laughs> hard to get distracted when you're in pain. And so it brings you back again and again and again. And you can work on precisely that place, which is, oh, I see me falling into it. And you can notice it, because as soon as you fall into it, the muscles around the pain start to tense up. You get tense, your heart gets tense. And then you can notice, okay, can I back up a little bit and observe? And oh, I can relax, I can let down. You can notice the muscles, they start to relax a little bit. Your heart isn't, isn't as tense, right? So experiment, and the same with emotion. You're just trying, can I take a little bit of distance so I can see it instead of fall into it? But the aim is to, to, to be close to, the, to your feeling? Yes. Still not involved. Totally. Exactly, still not lost. Yes. Exactly. Um, so when I think of passion and equanimity, I often, at least for myself, they're such separate forces. Yeah. Um, and you said that the right passion has a Can you flesh that out a little bit more? Yeah. I think it's the difference. 
I'm going to say it one way and then I'll say it another way. Maybe this won't be clear right between But it's the difference between sadness and bitterness. Let me say that more. When you have an open-hearted passion for something and it doesn't happen, right? Or you wanted something to happen, you wanted some connection to happen, a relationship, a job you wanted, whatever it is, right? And it doesn't happen. Sadness arises. And that's really healthy, actually, and open when we really experience sadness. Sadness is actually quite open when we really experience it, right? It's sad. It doesn't mean it's not painful. But it's open. It's full-hearted. And when we have desire which has no equanimity in it, right, which, isn't, which, that is, which is not open to the possibility of failure, then my experience is that it's bitterness and tightness which arises. And so it's not that passion with equanimity doesn't mean, at least in my experience, you know what I'm talking about? It's not, it doesn't mean we don't care. We do care. There's tremendous passion, we care. And that's why there's sadness. When it doesn't happen, there's loss. And there's an experience of loss, a real experience of loss. And, um, and I, as my earlier, I would say not having that seems to me unhealthy. We want to have that experience of loss. But the real experience of loss is sort of open and full-hearted because it's got the equanimity present. Because it's got the equanimity. So it's, it's a total commitment, but it's with that basic knowledge of the total uncertainty and unpredictability of life and the fact that we're not in control. It's probably another way of saying it. We say the same thing by just saying that passion with equanimity is a passion which is not demanding control, right? It has a very strong preference about what's going to happen in life. It's pursuing that with all its energy, but it doesn't have the illusion of being in control or demanding control. And passion or desire which lacks equanimity is trapped in that notion of control. And then from that notion of control comes the bitterness and the disappointment rather than the loss and the sadness, which in some ways... Some ways, you know, often we go into the bitterness and the, and the disappointment, I think, because the actual loss and sadness feels more painful, you know, sometimes even more difficult. But my, at least my experience is that it is scary, but when we actually open to it, it's much more healing than the bitterness and disappointment is. So, um, it's always difficult for me. I kind of have it almost there, but slips away. The idea of being engaged, passionately engaged, and just being. Mm. Um, I know what it's like to be passionately engaged and just being when I'm passionately engaged. But if I'm not passionately engaged yet, then just being feels like it's not going to get me there. <laughs> Passionate engagement somehow has some action involved. Oh, yeah. Passionate engagement definitely has action involved with it. And being um, can't have action involved with it. But it's a, can. <coughs> but it's a different kind of action. In fact, the passion and engagement, in my experience, can arise from the just being. 
when we're just willing to stop and genuinely be present with what's happening right now. There's actually an automatic joy and passion which is there. It's present in the very texture of our experience, whatever that experience is, when we're 100% with it. And also, there's a natural arisement of compassion, actually of love. Love is is a natural response to the experience of being. And from that love, action arises. And that's natural and beautiful. There's no problem with that at all. But the difference is, is that it's an action which arises from the love. And so it's, it's not, I mean, you know, we can play with the language however we want and we can say it in different ways. But in a certain way, it's less a doing than a surrender. Right? There's a way we sort of, again, I'll suggest to you to check out your own experience. Check out a time when you made a decision which felt totally right to you. It's like this was the right decision. 100% the right decision. And I'd suggest, at least in my own experiences, that those decisions which felt most right for us didn't feel like some kind of imposition. We didn't weigh up the pros and cons and say, I'm deciding to do that, right? It felt like touching what we already knew to be true in ourselves and just letting it unfold. And there was a doing there. It wasn't like we didn't do anything. We made important decisions, whatever it was. We got married, or we went to school, or we moved cities, or we chose a new career, or whatever it was we did. We did some very, very important and major things in life. And those things took a lot of effort and courage and action and everything, right? There's no problem with that. But the place it came from was actually this place of sort of touching what was sort of calling us to be, rather than kind of an imposition and an effort at control. And it probably comes back to, again, that's what we're talking about, which is control. It's like, when we're trying to control, then that, that's kind of doing. It's like, if I just do this, then everything will be okay. And when we let go of control, then a kind of spontaneous action can arise, which is no less vigorous, necessarily. It can be extremely vigorous. It can be not vigorous. It can be anything. But it can be extremely vigorous. But there's an open-heartedness to it, which is different. It's like of control. It's, a, it's the no attempt to control. That is what this is what defines or allows yeah. this to be passion and not desire. And That's not right. There's a surrender. A cake. Right. Yeah. There's a surrender to the you know the waiting for the princess who's never coming. Right. <laughs> And it's not, of course, that, you know, these different stories point out different things. I'm not suggesting that you right, <laughs> go away in the graveyard, obviously. And even that story is, is partially about, probably it starts with attachment. You know, at the beginning, he's just like attached to the princess. It transforms through the one-pointedness, to, through the concentration itself. And that itself is an interesting element, because we can do that. You know, we can start with that tighter element, and through the sort of 
surrender, just like you know, that surrender of the self, something else can blossom. It's not like we always have to, this is, I just say, this is an important true point in general. You know, we don't always have to get it right the first time. You know, we don't get it right the first time, if you may have noticed, you know? So like, but sometimes you think like, oh, I didn't do it right the first time, now it's all messed up. Like, it's not, you know? You can just go at it from wherever you are at the moment and like, so your passion will have some attachment in it or your equanimity will be a little bit detached or something and you sort of keep coming back to it and back to it and back to it and, and the things open a little bit more and come more towards that place of sort of passion and equanimity. Maybe, maybe they don't and maybe you fall off and you come back. That's okay, we don't need to start at the right place. You know, wherever you start, that's the truth. Not just where you're starting. And so you could wish to start somewhere else. That's not going to help you very much. <laughs> so you might as actually start where you are. So thank you, everybody. Um, uh, just a few notes about the class, for those who are new. Um, this class is by donation. There's a uh, tin foil tray out there <laughs> that you can put your donations in. Um, please donate generously. Nobody pays me for this class. Um, there's also a sign-up sheet for anybody who's interested in getting the emails. Uh, the emails basically just tell you when the class is and isn't meeting. Sometimes they're out of town, etc., so the class doesn't meet. If you'd like to, you can put your uh, name and email address on there. And if everybody could, could please help us uh, reset up the class to a classroom, that would be great. Okay.